0: Exhibitions like Discriminating Thieves can be such an amazing platform for not only being transparent about our provenance, but also just disseminating this information on a more public level and helping our visitors to understand the importance of this research and the importance of provenance within the museum collection.
1: Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Provenance Specialist Mackenzie Mallon with the Nelson atkins Museum. In the following conversation, Ms. Mallon tells what inspired the Discriminating Thieves exhibition and about the work included in it, work that had been looted by the Nazis during the war and then returned to their rightful owners. Ms. Mallon also shares about her view on the importance and never-ending process of provenance research as new sources become available, her involvement with the German-American Provenance Research Exchange, and her recommendation of an exhibition entitled Paintings, Politics, and the Monuments Men, which will be featured on an upcoming episode of this podcast. Mackenzie Mallon, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. The Discriminating Thieves exhibition that was recently at the Nelson Atkins Museum is so well-titled. Would you describe how the idea for the exhibit came about and your work as a provenance specialist to make it a reality?
0: Well, thank you, Stephanie, for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here and just honored. Uh, by your invitation. Um, yes, so uh, my role as the the provenance specialist here at the Nelson Atkins uh, is to consider the provenance of our entire collection uh, with a special focus on um, the Nazi era uh, and making sure that every object in our collection uh, has as complete provenance during that period as we can. And over the course of my research uh, into our European paintings and sculpture collection, I discovered that we had a number of objects that did have a history of having been looted by the Nazis or confiscated uh, as degenerate art, all of which, uh, thankfully, were returned uh, after the war or properly resolved after the war. And this just gave me this idea that you know we want we want to be as transparent as we can about the provenance of our of our collection and I have been looking for opportunities to to do that to increase the transparency of the provenance of our collection beyond just adding provenance to our online collection search and I have been trying to find ways that we could do this in the galleries and when we discovered that we had a group of objects that shared this history of having been looted uh, during the war, the opportunity just really presented itself uh, to take a deeper dive into these issues and to what it means to research uh, the provenance uh, of objects that were looted during the Nazi era, uh, and to put this out in front of our visitors and help them to see our collection in an an entirely new light. Um, So that's really where the idea came from, just this this desire to be as transparent as possible uh, about our collection's provenance, but also to engage with our visitors in in entirely new ways. Um, And so it was was a really great uh, opportunity, and it was a lot of fun. The title of the exhibition, Discriminating Thieves, that came actually from correspondence. Uh, from our our first director, his name was Paul Gardner, and he served as a monuments man in Europe, uh, mostly in Italy. And uh, he wrote letters back to the staff here at the museum while he was uh, at war, uh, describing his work and uh, the things that he was doing there. And in one of his letters, he described uh, how uh, the Nazis were looting art. And he said, uh, the Nazis really are discriminating thieves. And so that's where the title of the exhibition came from.
1: And the four works that are in this group that formed the exhibition, they are, to me, it seems a, a sampling of the way that the Nazi looting occurred, and it included initially the German museums that were looted. And so the Emil Nolde masks painting, would you speak about that one? Sure.
0: Uh, So we have a painting in our collection. Um, It's titled Masks. Uh, It is by Emil Nolde, who was uh, a German expressionist artist. Um, And this painting was in the collection of the Museum Folkbong in Essen, Germany, prior to the war. Uh, it had been purchased by uh, that museum's founder uh, directly from the artist. And uh, in 1937, uh, when the Nazis' Degenerate Art uh, Declaration was made and the removal of works of art from German museums that were considered to be degenerate uh, or um, immoral in some way or um, un, uh, undesirable, uh, by Hitler, um, when these removals were taken from the German museums, uh, a number of these works were, uh, destroyed outright, and others that were identified as, um, possible money makers, uh, works that they could, they could make money by selling, uh, in order, uh, to get foreign currency. Uh, those works were given to, uh, a handful of dealers, German dealers, who were tasked with selling them abroad, and one of the works uh, that has this history is our, is our masks. Um, it was given to the dealer Karl Buchholz, who um, actually kept it in his possession for over a decade. Um, he had it until 1948, so several years after the war. and. Uh, in 1948, he transferred it to his protege, Kurt Valentin, who had opened a gallery in New York, um, originally operating under Buchholz's name, but, orig- but eventually changed the name to Kurt Valentin Gallery. And it was, it was from this gallery that uh, the Nelson-Atkins purchased the painting in 1954.
1: I was curious about the, uh, the subject of The masks painting. What I'd read was it was Nolde's own impressions from his visits to Berlin's Ethnological Museum. And I wondered if you had seen anything about why this particular painting, among many that Nolde had that were labeled as degenerate, if you thought that that had anything to do with it, or uh, if you'd seen anything in your research about the content, or was it just that he was a colorist and they didn't like his approach to color. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, well, th- regarding why this particular painting was singled out, um, I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you're right. Um, the The subject is um, a group of masks. Um, we think that some of them were African in origin. Uh, there's a shrunken head um, uh, from Brazil, I believe. Uh, so it's really uh, a group of of almost faces, because it's it's so two-dimensional, um, a group of faces that some people do describe as, as kind of frightening. Um, and the colors are very, very bold. And I don't really know Enolda's um, mindset behind this or the purpose behind the painting uh, or even why it was singled out for true confiscation other than just its style uh, because the, the color is very unnaturalistic. Um, you know it's it's not, uh, it's not a realistic depiction. It's very it's very, um, uh, it's very um, almost fantasized. It's, the colors are very bright.
1: One of the other points that I had heard you make in uh, one of your talks was that Nolda was actually a Nazi. Party member, and I thought it was interesting to uh, compare with the idea too that masks uh, seem to have been used t- to to symbolize uh, alienation and disconnect. And I just just sort of looking at this particular painting, I thought, well, that's interesting that he was a Nazi party member, he was targeted by the Nazis, and this particular painting is sort of symbolic of what he experienced from them.
0: <laughs> That's an interesting take. Um, it's yeah. true. Nolda is, is really a, a study in contrast. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having been a party member and uh, for much of his life, uh, I believe, long after the war, um, but yet he also faced this discrimination by them. Um, it is it is a duality that is hard to Uh, to rectify in my mind and I think in the minds of a lot of scholars uh, he is kind of an enigma but the painting itself uh, despite um, despite it it's sometimes perceived um, almost uh, scary scariness um, I've come to appreciate it uh, greatly I think it's a fantastic picture Um, it really does just say so much to German, to the style of German Expressionism and what they were trying to, to do with, um, with colors and with brushwork. Uh, it's, it's really just a gem in our, our collection of modern works. You know, all the documentation that uh, the Nazis put together regarding their confiscations of degenerate art um, did make the research a lot easier because those records survive uh, in a great extent. And so we have the opportunity to view them today and to piece together step-by-step step, the object's uh, movements throughout the war. And there were a lot of movements. It moved around a lot. Um, even when it was in the possession of Carl of Buchholz, the German dealer, it moved several times. Um, and so having those records available does make the provenance research on this type of work um, a little easier uh, from our perspective, and plus there been some really wonderful uh, scholarly studies uh, published in the last 20, 30 years about the Degenerate Art Campaign and um, the removal of this work from the German museums, um, and so we have the benefit of a building on, on other scholars' work and, uh, and their insights into the archives as well.
1: One of the points about the, the other three pieces in the exhibit that struck me were uh, either vagueness or errors on the property cards. Uh, the piece, that was a bust that Marguerite Stern had owned. You had mentioned that one of the pitfalls of researching women in provenance uh, comes up with her and the property card that lists one of her male heirs. So I was kind of curious what you had seen as far as the types of pitfalls in provenance research that you'd experienced when women are concerned.
0: Oh, yes. This this is a, uh, a consideration that we deal with, not just in researching the Nazi era, but all areas of provenance. Um, really not until the last few decades, I would say, um, have we seen really a a focus on documentation of female collectors, uh, of preservation of their correspondence and of their archives. Researching women in provenance is a challenge uh, for many reasons, one of which they often change their names. Uh, And sometimes their first name wouldn't even be used. They would be Mrs. So-and-so. And and if if they... married multiple times throughout their life and always went by their husband's name, that can get challenging to trace. Um, And certainly we have genealogical records that are becoming more and more available to researchers that can help with some of that. But uh, there is a point where it gets to be so confusing that it's hard to sort out. Um, And then certainly I've been doing a lot of research in the last few months on women collectors here in Kansas City and the private collections that they put together. And that in itself could be a challenge because a lot of them were buying art with money that was in effect given to them as allowance from their husbands, And they were allowed to use at their discretion and some of them used this money to buy art. And that those transactions aren't always, aren't always uh, registered in their own papers, if their own papers even survive. And so uh, there are so many nuances to researching women collectors um, that it really is, it can be, it certainly can be a challenge. But there are also instances in which women have played well-documented roles in the provenance of our works. Uh, even, for example, with our Nolda painting, um, Kurt Valentin, the dealer from whom we purchased the painting, uh, his assistant was a woman named Jane Wade. Jane Wade was from Kansas City. And so we have this wonderful uh, connection with her and with Kurt Valentine that comes out in the correspondence between her and our staff here at the museum as they were talking about the potential purchase. Um, so it's an, that's one way that we are able to know a little bit more about women working in the art market especially if they're working um, for a dealer or for um, an established commercial entity. But the private collectors are, are a little harder <laughs> to track down sometimes.
1: And so for the Marguerite Stern piece, how was it, uh, or do you know the details of how it was connected to her even though it was listed? Was it her deceased husband's initial that was used?
0: Yeah, it- the collection, her collection was cat, was cataloged under her deceased husband's name. His name was Edgard, but he's also listed as Edgar or, and in some cases, even Edmund. So we've got that variation of the name, um, you know, just due to error, uh, transcribing error. Um, but also... In the case of the provenance of our sculpture, we ended up finding the card, the inventory card for it under a a relative of hers, and I, I don't recall the relationship, I think maybe a cousin, by the name of Caroline Stern. Um, and of course, Stern is not a particularly unique last name. Um, you know, there are a lot of people named Stern, so it was a lot of records to have to go through. And in a way, I mean, provenance research is so, is so fortuitous. Uh, a lot of provenance research tends to happen by chance um, or just dumb luck sometimes and in this instance um it was just a matter of culling through all of these records by uh, related to people with the last name of stern and having to come across a reference to this particular object and able to make that connection that's not always the case because objects aren't always described in inventories or in archival documents in detail enough for us to identify a specific piece so we were just lucky in that instance <laughs>
1: Also, the the luck that would play into something like the Pierre Bonnard that you have in the collection, still life with Gelder roses, that was on the property card, just listed as flowers, I believe. Are these the property cards that the Nazis would have been filling out, or was it uh, later down the line?
0: Uh, we actually have uh, property cards on both sides. So for the for the case of the Bonnard still life. Um, And we call it Still Life with Gelder Roses today. Uh, We have property cards from the ERR, the Reichsleiter Rosenberg, the the Nazi group that was overseeing um, confiscation of Jewish property in the occupied territories. And so this was uh, a painting that came out of a private collection in France, in Paris. Um, And then we also have the property cards that are very similar in in layout and design and structure and information that were created by uh, the Allied forces at the end of the war and following the war at the central collecting point. So um, this particular painting was at the Munich central collecting point. And so we have that property card as well. Um, This one was actually illustrated uh, and that helped us a lot because as you said, it was just, you know, it's hard to, to sort out all the different still lifes or flowers or still life with flowers. <laughs> but this one, um, a lot of, some works at the, at the collecting points were photographed, and this one, thankfully, uh, did get a photograph, and so we were able to match it up visually, which was very helpful.
1: For the Augustus the Strong painting uh, titled uh, very differently on the property card, but it was still able to be linked with it. Did it also have a, um, an illustration on that one that helped, or do you know how it was determined which painting it was? Because I, I believe it was listed as a completely different person's portrait on the card.
0: It was. Um, so our painting is of Augustus the Strong, and uh, on the card, it was listed as King Friedrich IV of Denmark. Um, And I don't think that this is illustrated on an inventory card, but it was photographed uh, at the central collecting point um, for conservation purposes. And interestingly enough, uh, it had also been photographed uh, at the time of its confiscation, um, because it was included in one of the photo albums that uh, the, the people working for Hitler put together, uh, for for Adolf Hitler as gifts uh, documenting works of art that they had confiscated from Jewish collectors for his purposes for his collection um, you know he wanted to create uh, a museum in his hometown of Linz, Austria that he called the Fuhrer Museum and so when when his uh, his when the people working for him would, t- or would loot a work of art that was planned to go into this future museum, they would take a photograph of it and put it in a photo album and these albums would be given to him. Uh, and a lot of these were published a few years ago uh, in a, a volume called uh, The Lentz Museum. And I, when I was first starting to do this research, I worked with our library to purchase a lot of books uh, that had to do with provenance and specifically Nazi or provenance research. And this was one of the books that we had bought. It was brand new. It had just come out and, uh, I was just flipping through it, literally just flipping through it. Um, not even really stopping at a page and my thumb landed on, just got stuck on, on a, a corner and, I I stopped and looked at the photographs there, and sure enough, there was a portrait of our painting right there on that page. And I thought at first, oh, well, maybe there's more than one version. (laughs) You know, it's certainly possible that there could have been more than one version of this painting done, but it turns out, no, it was ours. So that's another instance of how luck can sometimes play a role in provenance research and having a good library, (laughs) having access to good resources, too. Um, And that that was a book published by um, Birgit Swartz. Recently, there have been some really wonderful volumes published, uh, compilations of articles that deal with provenance on a more general scale, um, which is really exciting. You know, the focus on not fear provenance has been so important and continues to be important and always will be important in this field. Um, But the field is growing and expanding, and the most recent publications are um, examples of how this is happening. Uh, Jane Malosh and Nick Pierce published a volume in 2019 called Collecting and Provenance. Uh, It was joint published by the Smithsonian Institution and the University of Glasgow, and it is absolutely fantastic. It includes um, articles that deal with the provenance of every type of object you could possibly think of. And it's important for us, I think, to to understand that provenance is not just focused on art, but can also uh, be applied to um, music, musical instruments, books. Um, libraries, and, and really anything that can be transported um, is, is, can have a provenance. And so the field is expanding, and it's exciting to see uh, the scholarship matching that expansion.
1: And that sort of brings me to a question about uh, the German-American provenance research exchange that you were involved in, and it, it was... Uh, sponsored by the Smithsonian Provenance Research Initiative, I believe, as well as the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation? That's correct. So did that play any role in your work for the exhibition, or can you describe a bit about your experience with it, um, with the initiative? Yes,
0: that program was um, a game-changer for me. Um, It gave us, those of us working in the provenance research field, the opportunity to get a deep dive into some of the most important archival resources for this type of research. But even more importantly, perhaps, it gave us the opportunity to meet other researchers who are doing the same work. And, you know, they always say it's about who you know, right? Well, I think there are very few fields in which that is more valid than provenance research. Um, we, the, the, the research into our provenance is so vast that the collectors, the number of collectors, the geographical scope of collectors that we're dealing with is so enormous that no one can ever possibly know everything. And But the more people that we have the opportunity to network with who are doing this research, that just expands our knowledge and our understanding because we have colleagues to whom we can turn when we have questions um, who might be working on a collector that we've never encountered before, but suddenly we need to know something about, but I can find someone in Germany or in Austria or in the UK who's working on this person and we can share our information and can collaborate in such a in that way and, and so um, those kinds of connections are absolutely vital to provenance research. And the German American Provenance Research Exchange program expanded my network of colleagues in, in infinitely. <laughs> um, and they continue even though even though I attended it in 2017, I continue to call on them, Today, and I'm sure I will for many years, and especially through this pandemic, uh, when, you know, a lot of archives were closed, libraries were closed, um, and so much of what we were doing turned online. Um, we were able to reach out via email or via, you know, web platform and share our information and share what we're working on and, and still make strides forward in our research because we had that ability to collaborate. Um, so that's what it—that's what did—that's what prep the the provenance research exchange program did the most for me. And yes, the exhibition the discriminating piece came out of that in a great way. We we had a whole conversation at the end of our our session in Berlin about how we can make provenance research more transparent. How can we do this? And we had seen a couple of exhibitions in Germany that. Although it didn't they didn't focus necessarily on not the art looting, they did focus on provenance and the research that's been doing being done over there. And it got the wheels turning in my brain. Maybe we can maybe this is something we can do at the Nelson Atkins too. And um, and we were able to do it, which is just fantastic.
1: The digital interactive and all the documentation that you've included with the uh, the exhibit. Could you kind of give an overview of the background that you gave visitors on any of the pieces that, you know, like it's four pieces and yet there's a wealth of information that you can go through, like the way you juxtaposed Otto Dix's war cripples from a catalog with the German ideal of a soldier at war And I was curious if you did more juxtapositions like that and what else was in your digital archive?
0: Yeah, um, so we did include, um, not digitally, but uh, in hard copy, uh, a case of exhibition catalogs um, from our very own library from German art exhibitions uh, during the period. So we had uh, the actual catalog from the Degenerate Art Exhibition and we had the actual catalog from the Great German Art Exhibition which was the antithesis to the Degenerate Art Exhibition and it gave us the opportunity to present those side by side and compare, contrast um, really the propaganda of what the Nazis were putting out about what kind of art is good art and what kind of art is bad art and so we would open those catalogs to pages that showed similar subjects Um, and I think we used we did, like you said, we used images of soldiers. Um, you know, of course, in the great German art exhibition, the images of soldiers were heroic, strong, healthy, powerful. Um, and the images of soldiers in the Degenerate Art exhibition were usually the opposite. They were wounded. They were scarred. Um, they were dealing with emotional issues, um, reality. And so it gave us the opportunity to compare and contrast those um those uh, concepts in the digital interactive that we had in the exhibition which in the in the space of covid uh seems so far ago but it it really was the favorite part of the exhibition for many of our visitors we had wonderful feedback about it um we tried to give our visitors the opportunity to do a deeper dive into the history of each work in the exhibition and what we knew about that Uh, we wanted to have images of the private collectors from whom these these works were taken, as well as the Museum Folkbond, from which the Nolde the Masks painting came, uh, to humanize the sources of these artworks. Uh, that we talked about um, the research process, and we were able to use digital scans from both the, the German archives and the American archives to document the, the entire path, the paths that these works took during the war. We also had map, maps, interactive maps that would show the journey that the works took all the way from Germany and all the way to Kansas City, um, because really their story continues here at the Nelson-Atkins. And we wanted to make sure that we also included how the work was acquired by us, um, so that we emphasize the fact that that these pieces are here in our collection um, with good title and that we we celebrate that they are part of our, our collection today.
1: Is there a way that the exhibit has been archived that for the future anyone who is interested could look at it? And I'm thinking of of like Google arts and culture. I've heard that as a way that some museums had thought about trying to preserve their exhibitions.
0: That's a wonderful thought. Um, No, we haven't done that. Uh, We have used Google art and culture for other things, but to my knowledge, we haven't put any of the exhibitions that we've had in our galleries into an online exhibition through that platform. It's an interesting thought. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, um, You know, there are some licensing issues with putting things um, such as our digital interactive online in perpetuity because some of the images that we included in that interactive were uh, generously lent to us from other institutions free of charge because they were uh, to be used in an educational context. Um, But if we were to put them online, that changes the audience and um, I think we, there would be some significant CEs re, uh, involved with that. So, um, but yeah, there, there was no catalog because it was a small show It was only four works of art, but it certainly is um, something that I wish that we could document in, in other ways. But we've put the, the public programs that we had in conjunction with the exhibition on our YouTube channel. So uh, people can go there and see our, our talks and the various programs that we had. Um, so I guess it lives
1: on <laughs> through those. Well, in two of those talks by you, I found very rich with information, and I would encourage everyone to to go see those on YouTube. And the third one that I saw, which I, I thought was such a great way to link uh People's thoughts about Nazi looting to the looting and pillaging that occurs today was the this this presentation by Corinne Wegener. Would you speak to that? How you uh, came to have her do a series that's couched in terms of the Discriminating Thieves exhibit? Sure.
0: Uh, so Corinne Wegener, um, she's amazing. She is. Uh, the director of the Smithsonian cultural Research Colonial Rescue Initiative, um, which works on the preservation of cultural heritage in crisis situations, um, not only here in the U.S., but abroad. And she had been uh, a U.S. Army Reserve officer and was on the ground uh, deployed in Iraq um, during the uh, 2003 uh, looting of the Iraqi National Museum. If I if I'm remember if I'm re- remembering this correctly, um, and it was important to us to be able to connect the provenance of the works in our Discriminating Thieves exhibition with with contemporary issues regarding art loss and the protection of cultural property. And Corinne was just the perfect choice, um, and she came to Kansas City and gave us a fantastic talk about the Smithsonian's work and her work uh, with the the Blue Shield, um, which has done similar uh, cultural property protection around the world. And we were just honored to have her uh, visit us and, and to speak with us.
1: Do you see a connection with what conversations that would come out of this exhibit and these talks, how it might facilitate uh, a more just concept of how viewers see Art looting.
0: Well, I hope that that our viewers understand that museums in the U.S. are working hard behind the scenes to research and document the provenance of their collections, so that we can ensure as much transparency in the history of our objects as we can, and that includes an understanding of the various illicit sources of artworks um looting from the nazis but also from uh other countries and in other contexts and by doing this kind of research we can help ensure that this type of looting uh is prevented in the future it raises awareness um but also it helps us determine um if, there are anything, if there's anything in our collections that we need to, to consider in greater depth uh, from a provenance standpoint. And so I hope that our visitors would understand that provenance research is a vital part of museum stewardship, of um, care of our collections, and, but that is also a, a very detailed and in some ways difficult and time-consuming and often costly uh, endeavor. And the fact that museums like the Nelson Atkins are willing to put forward the resources uh, towards these efforts shows our commitment to transparency of the provenance of our collection, but also protection of cultural heritage on a global scale.
1: You had mentioned feedback that you had received on the exhibit. Uh, have have there been examples with people having connected with your exhibit and seeing a, a different perspective or a more enlightened view of the the issues involved?
0: A lot of our visitor feedback has been, "Oh, I didn't know that this kind of research was done at the museum. I didn't know that this was even a thing. I didn't. It never even occurred." to me to think about how an object came to the museum or where it was or what happened to it before uh, before it arrived here at the museum. And in many ways, that's one of my favorite takeaways from the Discriminating Thieves exhibition is that it seems to have impacted so many of our visitors um, and getting them to consider our collection in new, uh, in new and exciting ways and to really open their imaginations into where were all of these objects before they came here and all the various ways that they, that they traveled and and have their histories. Um, It's a fun, it can be fun uh, to think about where these things came from and to explore uh, the history. And it's not always about, it's it's rarely about, honestly, it's rarely about looting or about, um, you know, problems in the provenance it's much more often about fun stories and um, interesting historical tidbits that we can that we can talk about so I think that's probably the best takeaway is just the opportunity to to have our visitors think about our collections in a new way
1: provenance research as a concern only has come to the fore in the last uh, few decades so As far as your role in being a provenance specialist at Nelson Adkins, are you still going through pieces that were collected prior to you coming to this position? uh, Or have you made it through all of the objects? I imagine that's quite a task.
0: (laughs) It is quite a task. We have, um, I believe, about 47,000 works of art in the collection. And so, um, you know, it's it's good job security, I guess, but um, we're constantly working on it, and it's not just me. Thankfully, <laughs> there's no way I could ever do it all. Um, I have the the pleasure and the great honor of working with an absolutely fantastic curatorial team at the Nelson Atkins, and um, this research is done in every curatorial department, and I'm here to to assist as needed, to advise, to help uh, put together. Um, Our procedures and our policies regarding provenance and the reporting of our research. Um, But I'm not the only person doing the research, thankfully, and uh, it's ongoing. And honestly, I even works of art that I have researched in the past very in depth. um, I still don't consider them complete. I I don't consider the research complete because. There are new resources becoming available all the time, all the time. And there's always something new to look at. And so I've just had too many experiences where I've, I've done so much research on a particular object. I've gone as far as I could go at that moment. Five years later, a new archive comes available, and I find new information. So I never think of provenance research on a particular object as finished. Uh, It always always keeps on going, and we'll be doing this
1: for the rest of uh,
0: the time, but the Nelson-Atkins is in existence, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) Was your uh, particular position created or had it been there before you? I I ask because uh, the emphasis that has been placed since the Washington Principles, for example, of focusing on uh, provenance research.
0: My role was created in 2015. Now, provenance research on the Nelson Atkins European collection from the nazi -er perspective had been uh, in progress for many years prior to that. I myself started on that project in 2011, um, but it goes back even to immediately after the Washington conference where they started identifying works of art that needed this kind of research and started to begin that process. But uh, my role, my dedicated provenance specialist role was created in 2015. And at that point, I was able to move beyond just the European collection and to be available to all the curatorial departments. Um, and so it's a much broader role uh, than the, just the Nazi era, although that does still um, maintain, that is still my focus um, to a large extent. I do just want to emphasize, uh, again, perhaps the importance of provenance research within the museum setting and how this type of specialized research that really does require a lot of time and a lot of um, specialized understanding a specialized knowledge Uh, I I really do believe that it is best served by someone that is dedicated to that research exclusively and I am so grateful I'm so grateful for the Nelson Atkins for giving me the opportunity to to fill this role here and to support me Uh, to such an enormous extent, um, and allow me to, to do this work to the very best of my ability, but, but also the best of the ability of our entire curatorial staff, um, their support is just outstanding and has enabled us to get to where we are. And, so, I would encourage anyone who works at museums to consider these types of exhibitions. Uh, they really are quite popular with our public, so they they're they're fun and they're interesting, um, but they they also have such a wonderful scholarly aspect to it, and they contribute to the field um, in amazing ways. And there are some new uh, shows that are coming up uh, just recently, the Cincinnati. Art Museum is going to do one, I think, later this fall, uh, on the Monuments Men and the works of art that were brought over to the U.S. after the war um, and put on exhibition around the country. And I believe the Jewish Museum is doing an exhibition in the fall as well. Um, and so, so it's fun to see, to see these new shows coming up. And um, I hope to be able to, to maybe visit some of them myself.
1: The Cincinnati exhibit, so Patrick Kelleher had been one of the two dozen or so officers who objected to removing works from that had been looted from German museums and they were bringing them over to the U.S. for a tour. Is that the same body of work?
0: Yes, that's right. So, yeah. Um Their exhibition is titled Paintings, Politics, and the Monuments Men, the Berlin Masterpieces in America. And I don't want to speak for them, of course, but um, it's listed on their website, and it's something that I've been aware that they were putting together for quite a while. And um, Patrick Kelleher was our, at the Nelson Atkins, our first curator of European art. And... uh, he actually acquired our portrait of Augustus de Strong that was in the discriminating fees exhibition. Um, but during his time as a monuments man, he worked at the Wiesbaden Central Collecting Point and was one of the uh, staff members there to sign what they call the Wiesbaden Manifesto. That was um, basically their statement against the removal of works from Germany. These were works that had come primarily from the Berlin museums. The removal of them after the war to the U.S. for traveling exhibition. and uh, their argument was that you know by removing them against the against the will of the the Germans, uh, they were in in some ways uh, treating them in the same way that. That the Nazis had treated the work that they were all working to recover and to restitute. And
1: so it was a controversial exhibition. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Discriminating Thieves exhibition. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast. You can also email your comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time. This is Stephanie Droddy bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, Injustice Anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire, to legal decisions that might infuriate. All with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfare of art and law dot com.